For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Deidre McDowell. She's visiting Tucson to portray a pioneering artist and activist in the stage play, Down to Eartha. Are Americans losing identity amid the noise of politics? Hear a conversation recorded in Kansas City as part of StoryCorps' One Small Step. Continue the 8990 trip as a daughter takes her 90-year-old father north on U.S. Highway 89 to revisit the memories of a lifetime. And how two University of Arizona scientists are using tree ring research to predict the future of forests in the Southwest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. I don't have to think about how do you play a cat. I am a cat. So that is what Eartha believed when she was performing as Catwoman, <laughs> that she wasn't really acting, she was a Catwoman. <laughs> C'est si bon de partir n'importe où, bras dessus, bras dessous, en chantant des chansons. C'est si bon. Few performers are as instantly recognizable as Eartha Kitt, which is ironic because she was fearless about diving into different forms of expression. From singing and dancing to acting, comedy, writing, and activism, Eartha Kitt rose from poverty and abuse to create a life as a truly international star. But breaking barriers as an outspoken woman of color came with consequences, as a new play reveals. I spoke with actress and playwright Deidre McDowell about what she learned in creating Down to Eartha as she prepares to bring the show to the Invisible Theater in Tucson. I wanted to sort of, you know, demystify her. You know, she's really viewed as such a caricature, I think, in, in so many people's eyes. And that's really her public persona. But I want people to see and feel her heart because she's such a wonderful and giving and generous humanitarian, a wonderful soul who feels very deeply. The core of her and inside of her was always injured because of feeling like a rejected child um, being given away by her mother at such a young age and living a life of abuse with the uh, foster family that she was given to. So all of that made such an impression on her soul. But in all of that, all she um, did was learn how to love herself and give love to others. So I want people to be able to see that essence of her when I'm on the stage and to feel that, as well as enjoy the public persona that she was, because it's absolutely fabulous. And she had so much fun herself. What kind of transformation, Deidre, do you take on when you become Eartha Kitt? I am fully committed those are big shoes to fill. And what I, I intend is I don't intend to half step when I step into the shoes of Eartha Kit. So it takes a lot of dedication. I really try to just really align myself with her. And, you know, stepping into her shoes, I think it's a perfect um, analogy because that's what I feel like I'm doing. 
um, her voice. You know, this is, you know, this is me talking to you. You're hearing Deidre's voice, but when I, when I perform as Eartha Kitt, I, you know, sink into her voice as well. There's so, definitely a, a purr in Eartha's voice. Yes. And even the purr that she does, which is very, <laughs> very interestingly, how she does that from her core, not just from, that's a different kind of thing. Like people think of the way Jaja, I remember Jaja Gabor would do it with her, she would do it with her tongue. But Eartha was coming from like really the animalistic part of her. So those things are important. And one more thing <laughs> I, um, that was important to me, especially in the beginning when I started uh, performing as Eartha Kitt, was I knew that she got her big break through dance by um, joining the Catherine Dunham troupe back in the 40s. And so it was important to me to understand what was that like, because whatever it was, it really informed her, her body and her body language throughout the rest of her life. So I found a a Dunham instructor here in New York and, and studied with him for a while. And then, you know, people are not teaching the Dunham technique. Not, not a lot. It's not easy to find, but I was lucky enough to be able to grab onto two different instructors while they were still teaching. And at least I was able to incorporate, you know, that in my body. What part of Eartha's life does Down to Eartha concentrate on? What kind of stories can the audience expect to hear? Down to Eartha is particularly um, focused on the blacklisting. She was invited to the White House to um, participate in a luncheon with uh, Lady Bird Johnson. She was invited by Lady Bird Johnson and was amongst 50 other women invited to that luncheon. When um, Eartha Kitt stood up to discuss why they were actually there, which was to talk about why there was so much juvenile delinquency in America at the time. Her views uh, reflected the fact that she thought it was because of the Vietnam War. And it was her opinion. And it was uh, something that, you know, she had been working with several groups, the Mothers of Watts, which was an organization um, with mothers who, whose sons were involved in the Vietnam War. And um, Eartha had, you know, very good reference about this. People were talking to her constantly about it, expressing their views about it. So she saw that as an opportunity to, when she was invited to the White House, to go and express her views. Now, because it was against the Vietnam War, a Lady Bird Johnson reportedly cried at, after Earth expressed her views. And so right away, immediately two, two hours after that, Eartha Kitt was blacklisted by order of uh, President Lyndon Johnson. So this is really what the play is about. And we see not only the fact that it happened, but how it affected her and how she recovered from it. It's important to show the fall and the rise I wanted to end on that, on the rise, you know, of her. And it gives me great pleasure. You know, one, one of the things I want to do is reintroduce her to the world and introduce her to people who, who don't know her, who are not aware of her. Come on, my house, my house, come on. 
Deidre McDowell brings her one-woman show, Down to Eartha, to Tucson for a pair of performances Friday and Saturday, November 22nd and 23rd at the Invisible Theater at 1400 North 1st Avenue. The StoryCorps initiative, One Small Step, was created in response to the polarization and partisanship that dominates the national conversation on politics and social issues. It's an attempt to find common ground and raise awareness of people's similarities instead of their differences. NPR 89.1 was one of six radio stations across the country chosen to participate. Next, we'll hear a conversation recorded at KCUR in Kansas City, Missouri. Mike Parker is a veteran with more than five decades of service who is now a full-time volunteer. Ellen Carmody is an assistant school principal, and together they tackle some difficult subjects. So what's your take on violence in high schools and gun shootings? Oh, and my things? gosh. Let me tip my let me tip my hand. Tip your hand, yeah. (laughs) I think there's a sickness in this country. Agreed. I think there's there might be a hardware problem, but I think there's a software problem. And that actually probably goes back to all kind of all the bigger issues we deal with. So so we can talk about I mean right now abortion issues all around and we and gun violence and this. I think that we don't spend any time talking about what causes those issues. We talk and focus on, well, let's ban guns, let's ban this, ban this, you know, rather than talking about what the bigger issue is. The fact that, you know, my students know what to do if there's a mass shooter, but they might not necessarily know how to do their taxes, that bothers me a little bit. Like, where are we, I mean, they're, like, what are the, should they really have to be in that space? And I do think then it causes people to be afraid mm-hmm. to be, and I don't want I don't want my kid to live in fear. I don't want any kid to live in fear. That's mm-hmm. an awful place to be. Two years ago, I, I got to go to Rwanda for a year, or not a year, a month, to study mm-hmm. the genocide through a, a grant. And I was thinking about all the, the lessons I learned from just talking to survivors of genocide and mm-hmm. of just the power of reconciliation and the power of healing that that whole community had to go through. And I hate that it had to be the killing of a million people, right, to make change is horrible, right? So how do we bring reconciliation and how do we bring forgiveness into kids who who don't see any other solution than to go shoot their classmates and teachers or to people who are angry about their religion and go shoot up a church or a mosque or a synagogue? I mean, what is going on, right, that we're – where are we failing people don't take this the wrong way, okay, but I think the solutions are more at a state or community level than at the national level. I mean, I lived in in uh, in, in Hinesville, Georgia, and moved from Hinesville, Georgia to Sparta, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You would have thought I moved to the other side of the world. <laughs> I mean, somebody said, go to the stop and go and take a left. What's a stop? And go? <laughs> it's a stoplight. Or go to the roundabout. Right. What's a roundabout? Well, it's a rotary. <laughs> yeah, different language, mm-hmm. different expectations, different culture. And so what resonates in... Savannah, Georgia doesn't resonate in Sparta, Wisconsin, right. or in you know other places, Manchester, Connecticut. We are so big and so diverse. You know, it's there's not a solution. I don't think there's a strategic solution for the United States. I think it's it's got to be taken at a much lower le- at a much lower level. So the application could mm-hmm. be at a much lower level, but mm-hmm. I still think if we go back to a like there is something that binds us at a national mm-hmm. level, right? And and what is that? And is it you know, bring me your tired, your poor, your, or is it we the people, or is it what, you know, what is that, that collective we that, that draws people still 
yeah. here, right? And in my world, you have those great big umbrella dreams and that we all feed up to that, but we all can can do it in kind of our our unique little regional way. Lo- but I think we lose it in the noise. And to go back to... Let's go back to quiet, to go man. Back to quiet <laughs> in silence. I think we lose it. In, there's so much noise yeah. that we lose it and we forget who we are. Yeah. Thanks to Mike Parker and Ellen Carmody for participating in StoryCorps' One Small Step. Their conversation was produced by Ron Jones and Matthew Long Middleton at the public radio station KCUR in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find conversations recorded in Tucson on the azpm.org website. Just search One Small Step. What's on your bucket list? In this series, we'll join journalist and author Lisa Schneble Heidinger and her father, Larry Schneble, on a road trip for his 90th birthday. Before he retired, Larry was a well-known radio and TV broadcaster. His grandparents pioneered the area that is now Sedona, which was his grandmother's name. Larry said the only thing on his bucket list was to drive up U.S. Route 89 all the way to the Canadian border, revisiting many places he has known since childhood. They began in Prescott. The journey would take the Schnebleys more than 3,000 miles round trip, and for Larry, through almost 90 years of memories. U.S. 8990 trip, day two. Dateline, heading into Flagstaff. So, the first full morning, our first full breakfast, uh, we stayed in Williams last night and came across what linked two spurs of 89, which was the 40, basically, the business 40. And there were a couple of things I wanted you to catch up on. Um, Both of us have lived in Flagstaff several times. We're surrounded by layers of memories. Being here brings them back, like this one from Larry's time at KGPH Radio in 1950. We had a Western announcer named Wayne Barnes who did a spot for uh, the movie theater in Williams regularly and he announced that one of the stars, there were three stars and I can't remember who the other first two were, but that Sir Sidericky Hardwicky was going to be in such and such a movie at the Empress Theater. <laughs> Sir Sidericky Hardwicky, yeah. And that was all right. Larry's grandparents were Sidona and T.C. Schneble. His grandpa named the town after his grandma. And here in Flagstaff, another recollection. We're parked on a street where Henry Albers, who came to this area in the early 19s, lived with grandma and grandpa down in Sedona, what became Sedona. And he started the Flagstaff Steam Laundry and Dry Cleaners was the name of the building. And it was right here. Is this the rock building it was? Yeah. One of my favorites of Dad's Flagstaff stories is about how complicated it was to do live election coverage. So we ran a mic line about 400 feet down one of the main drags and taped it across the alleys and taped it 
so that people who were walking along wouldn't disturb it. And we reported the election from the Coconino Daily Sun offices live on KGPH. What year would that, would that have been? Probably 1950. We head north. He points out volcano fields and mentions a weather term I'd never heard. Well, the rain shadow is the area that we're in now stopped at Cameron, parked in front of the post office building. And the trading post is to our north. But the rain shadow is uh, an area of northeastern Arizona where the San Francisco Peaks has protected, quote unquote, the land from so much rain. And the rain shadow means that the Navajo Indian Reservation, which is in the northeast corner of Arizona, gets very little rainfall. Passing the single service station that is known as The Gap brings another memory. The Gap was always expensive gasoline. It cost five to seven cents a gallon more than Flagstaff gas. But my dad once needed gas badly enough that he stopped at The Gap. So that five to seven cents would have made it cost what? 27 cents a gallon, probably, <laughs> instead of 19 or 20. We get to Marble Canyon, where the Navajo Bridge crosses the Colorado River. Dad remembers the first time he crossed it, when his father had picked up some large, flat stones. The first time I went to Wasatch Academy in Mount Pleasant, Utah, with my father, he drove us and the Flat Rocks to Navajo Bridge and got out and carried the Flat Rocks halfway across the bridge. At that time, there was no river traffic. People were not going down the river as there are boats below you today. And what happens when you drop We would drop the flat piece of rock and it would disappear because it was the same color as the Colorado River water. And then you would see a sploosh fountain of foam and water boil up from the river when the rock hit. Then you would hear the smack echoed down canyon five or six times. It was a bouncing effect from cliff to cliff, from east to west, down the river, down the canyon. That was the Glen Canyon rock dropping experience. <laughs> so like crack shot, ding, 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 ding. We cross our first state line into Utah. A great lunch at Kanab at the Rocking V, then Moki Cave, which is a truly memorable combination of ancient stone cave and modern marketing. Rain begins, silvery and gray, over a creek that runs beside us for miles, playful and pretty. You don't get that many places in Arizona. Tonight is in Panguitch, at a hotel on the main street under new management. So new, the hotel is empty except for us. We pay $38 for a queen room, reminding me of my brother saying, you lose money, stay in home. After months of planning and anticipation, we're finally doing this. It's almost hard to take it all in and savor every drop. But believe me, I'm giving it a good try. The 8990 trip will continue next week. You can read Lisa Schneble-Heidinger's travel diary and see photos from the journey 
on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The science of dendrochronology was formalized at the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona. It was founded in 1937. Now, two longtime staff members are taking a closer look at the formation of tree rings in order to understand how climate change will affect the forests of the Southwest. My name is Malcolm Hughes. I'm a Regents Professor of Dendrochronology, which is telling time using trees, here in the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona in sunny Tucson. Kiyomi is a Japanese name. Marino is also a Japanese name. I was named by my obachan, my, my grandmother. Uh, and one way that you can spell that name, the, the meaning of that name is actually um, tree reader. So uh, I guess I was meant to work at the tree ring lab. My, my obachan knew that. <laughs> Kiyomi. Marino and I are trying to get into the mechanisms on the plant side. Our main project starts uh, on Mount Bigelow, which is almost as tall as Mount Lemon, but 40 minutes closer. We go up to the mountain on a weekly basis, and we've selected a set of trees, all of them ponderosa pine, we follow these trees throughout the course of the growing season. So each week, we take a, a micro core. We're basically tracking their, their growth, the formation of a tree ring, almost on a cell-by-cell -cell basis. Something that's very special to Southern Arizona is what happens after a really dry April, May, June, when you know that you don't usually have to worry too much about washing your windscreen until usually July the 4th when the monsoon comes along and puts out the fireworks on a mountain. Everything slows right down when there's no water. But as, in fact, a few days before it comes, when the air is getting a bit more humid, the growth of the wood is already responding. So that provides us with numbers that we can put into our models to then run the models back to make sure that we can explain what has already happened and then run them forward a few years to see what various possible changes in our climate might affect tree growth. I think people that live and work in the forests and work with wood have known for thousands of years that tree stem was putting on an extra layer of growth each year. It took a feisty Yankee, Andrew Ellicott Douglas, to be brought down to the Southwest to find telescope sites in clear, dry air, and ended up recommending Mars Hill in Flagstaff. This was in the late 1880s. 1906, the U of A has an opening so he gets hired down here. And for him, it was all one field. This was part of astronomy. From the very beginning, from the time, the very beginning, <laughs> from when Douglas 
first started developing the science of dendrochronology, he was he was looking mostly at, at variability in, in, in tree, tree ring width. He didn't know much about plants, and if he'd known too much about plants, he would have thought it was impossible. So there are times when ignorance is, really is bliss, even in, in science. Uh, so you'll try things that shouldn't work, and if they do, then uh, you're, you're off to the races. The strength of the tree rings is that they give us a much more complete picture of the variability of climate conditions on like centennial and sometimes millennial timescales, which is important to know. It puts the current conditions into context. I was involved in one of the first papers using tree rings and other records to show how unusual the climate of the last three decades has been. And from some of the political and vested interests responses to that, there's clearly a problem of fessing up to the problem that we have. Look at the things that have changed in our society in the last 20 years about tobacco, about people's private lives and so on. They were not thinkable in the 70s or 80s. So it's not a reason to be complacent or Pollyannish, but it's to say, how, what uh, can we do? We need to get our act together and, and, and identify solutions. And I think there are quite a few. The main reason we do it is to find out how things work. You know, I mean, that's the driving impulse, is to find out, is to get under the hood of, of the natural system and find that relay or that fan belt that's gone and figure out which is the right one to put back in. How does it actually work? That's the motivation that uh, keeps us doing sometimes repetitive and crazy looking things for years in order to find something out. I love being in the forest. I love having the excuse to take a close look at the forest. It forces you to sort of stop and look around and, you know, take into account your surroundings. For me, that's like, that's super invigorating. And it's especially great to go up in the mountains when it's like 115 down in Tucson. That story was produced by Vanessa Barchfield and adapted for radio by Maya Hoffman-Long. You can watch the video version of the story on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.